0: As we finish Acts 13 this morning, I want to invite you, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 13. That's where we're going to be today. As we finish this part of the book of Acts, I want you to see that Acts chapter 13 is kind of like a microcosm of our larger sermon series. Here's what we're saying in this series. We're saying that we are God-sent people, and when we get mission right, when we get the message right, we'll see a movement. Acts 13, this was the dynamic, this is how it played out, let me just show you. In verses 1 through 12, the spotlight was on gospel mission. What did we see there? We saw Barnabas, we saw Paul, traveling around with their team from various cities, sharing the gospel, leading people to faith in Jesus, leaving behind a fledgling church. As we turn to verses 13 to 41, what do we see there? the spotlight shifted to the gospel message. And we've spent the last three weeks looking at our sin, Jesus's death, and the resurrection, and what it means to get the gospel message right. Well, as you put those two things together, we say you should see a gospel movement, and that is what we're gonna see this morning as we look at verses 42 through 52. There is a gospel movement and lives are changed. Friends, this is always what happens when the gospel goes forward. There is always a change. There is a change in the human heart. When the gospel dawns on a landscape of human hearts, something something impressive happens. Something amazing happens. And really, the question is this. The question is not, will the gospel change you? The question is, how will the gospel change you? Let me illustrate this dynamic with an old saying that I believe has its roots in the Puritans. They said this, the same sun that melts the wax is the same sun that hardens the clay. So it is when the gospel goes forward, our hearts either soften in the light of the gospel to Jesus, or they harden and become hostile towards Jesus. This is the dynamic that we're gonna see in our text this morning and we learn so much. But what's the main thing that we're gonna do this morning? I want you to hear, my heart is for you. My heart's for Christ. I wanna hone in and focus in on when our hearts soften for Christ, the five different ways that the gospel changes us and changes us for the better. This isn't just some sales pitch, these are realities. I want you to see them. Why? So that you might soften and and bow the knee to Jesus. Or if you already are a Christian, you might be refreshed in what you already have. Or if you're here and a Christian, I want you to see what you have to offer to other people. Does that sound good? So here you go, we're gonna do something different. There is no outline this morning. See, some people are like, yeah, yeah. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read a couple verses. We're going to stop. We're going to lift them up. And I'm going to do my best to show you, do you see this vein of gold? Do you see this trail of diamonds running in the section of the text? This is yours in the gospel. Ready? Let's start. Let's go to verses 42, 43, and 44. Read with me. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. What do we learn there? What do we learn there? Did you see how these people's lives changed? They've become passionate. they become passionate. Let me show you how I got that. Let me show you how I got that. Look with me at verse 42. Do you see that the people begged to hear more gospel preaching? Look at verse 43. They basically stalk Paul and Barnabas. Why? Because they want to be discipled. They want to continue in grace. They want to grow in grace. They want more of Jesus. They're passionate about Jesus. Look at verse 44. What are, where, where does their passion show up? It shows up in the form of loving and caring for the welfare of other people. Right? Like they invited the whole town and the whole town showed up. They're like, something has happened. These people know passion. The gospel has produced Passion in their lives. And friends, that same passion is ours today in the gospel. We need passion. We need passion. Everybody's looking for passion, right? Everybody tells you, you've got to have passion. You've got to be passionate about something. And it's not just one thing, right? Like we're supposed to be passionate about our jobs, we're supposed to be passionate, and we want it, with our spouses. Right? We were supposed to be passionate with a hobby. We we're supposed to passionately have a social cause that we care about. Do you need one? Go find a celebrity. They've usually got 12, right? Here's the thing. Are you starting to sound exhausted? Well, we're not done. Do you have children? What's your task as a parent, according to our culture, to help them find their passions, right? Yeah, this starts to get a little bit overwhelming. What do you do when your passion conflicts with someone else's passion? How do you navigate that? There can be a problem. Is anybody feeling overwhelmed? No? Well, good news. Here at Grace, we want you to find a place where you can passionately serve, right? Like if that's not enough, we've got more for you. Friends, I need a nap. I need a cookie. On Sundays, I'm very passionate about preaching, but I'm very passionate about those two things, right? But here's the thing, we can't totally make fun of it, can we? Passion is part of the human experience. We do need passion. We have to ask, where will this passion come from? I can't manufacture passion, but I feel a passion to have a passion. I feel a hunger to be hungry for something or someone. So where will that passion come from, and where do I aim it? Good news. The gospel produces passion. How does it do it? How does it do it? The short answer is this. The gospel produces passion when you see our God's passion for you. You know, I was talking with, um, with a young lady recently. She said, go ahead, feel free to share this. She said, you know, I was raised in a church where it felt like we were always playing defense, pointing out how we were right and other churches were wrong. And I felt like I was part of the club just because I was there, I was went and I was accepted. But she said, I did not become a Christian until I heard a sermon and knew that Jesus wanted me. She saw her Savior's passion for her and now she lives passionately for Christ. Pastor Dane Ortland, in his amazing book, Gentle and Lowly, puts it this way. We've got a quote for you. He says, This high and holy Christ does not cringe reaching out and touching dirty sinners or numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. Do you hear his passion for you? That's not all. In another chapter, he quotes a pastor who said this, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by His showing His grace, His mercy, when He pardons somebody, when He relieves somebody's distress, when He comforts one of His people. It brings Jesus joy and happiness, to forgive, to comfort. He's passionate about that. Why? Because he's passionate about you. Oh, let that soften your heart. What a wonderful way to live, what a a power source from life to live from. Please don't harden your heart towards this. And here's the beauty of it. Here's the goodness in it. It's renewable, right? We talk about renewable energy sources. This is renewable. You can continue in it. How? How do you continue in it? What do I do? Where do I get this from? Well, let's go back through the text again. Go back with me to verse 42. Like the new converts who just can't wait for the Sabbath to get there. Friends, don't neglect Sunday worship. It generates passion when you see your Savior's passion for you. Look at verse 43. These new converts were Israelites, and what kind of proselytes? What kind of converts? What's the adjective? Starts with the D? Devout. They were devout. They followed the rules, but they were quick to abandon them. They let go of their deepest held traditions, circumcision, right? the sacrificial system, parts of the law. They came to understand that the law would not save them, and if there was something that would get in the way of giving them more of Jesus, boom, it was gone. They jettisoned it, right? Our job is not to get you passionate about about just God's word, although we want that. Our job is not just to get you passionate about doctrine or truth, although we want that. Those things are there to get you. To Jesus, They wanted Jesus. They wanted him so much. How do we stay passionate like them? Look at verse 43 again. They went to somebody who could help disciple them, help keep them growing in grace. Please do that. And then, and then in verse 44, they found other people to share their passion with. They wanted other people to become disciples. Oh, friends, what do we learn here? We learn that the gospel produces passion. That's just one way it changes your life. And that's just one reason why we should have soft hearts towards Jesus. What's the second one? Well, let's go to verses 45, 46, and 47. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. Well, this is sad. Isn't it sad when the enemies to Jesus come from within the church? When they major on the minors, right? And they minor on the major, Jesus Christ. Oh, it's sad. And look at what they do. They revile Paul. They slander him. In the Greek, that word is blaspheme. They're blaspheming Paul and Barnabas. It's sad. But what do Paul and Barnabas do in response? How have they been changed by the gospel? They respond with boldness. I mean, Paul says some really hard things if you think about verse 46. Let's look at it. What does he say in verse 46? He says this, since you thrust aside the gospel. I mean, Paul just goes right at it. He didn't say you politely or casually showed that you were disinterested You shove the gospel away the way a three-year-old in a booster seat pushes their plate off the table. Paul continues. He gets a little more offensive. He says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Like, wow, have you ever said that to someone's face? I don't know if I have, right? And I'm not scared to preach about hell. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty bold. But then he also says something else. He says, we're done here. Um... We're going to go over here. And he basically says, we're dropping you like a big kid on a seesaw. We're gone. And in verse 51, what happens? They wipe the dust off their feet and they head somewhere else and take the gospel elsewhere. Friends, I am not calling you to rudeness. Please do not hear that. But do you see how the gospel builds boldness in Paul and Barnabas' life? In our day and age, don't we love and respect people who are bold? Don't we love it and respect people who just speak their minds? right? My grandfather's generation, it was Sir Winston Churchill. In my parents' generation, it was Martin Luther King. If you're here and you're on the left, you probably admire Ricky Gervais, the comedian. If you're here and you're on the right, who do you admire? Probably Ben Shapiro in the Daily Wire news outlet. We all love a good, however you define good, we all love a good stand-up comedy, don't we? What drives comedy? It's boldness, right? Why do we respect them? Because they take the things in society that we won't touch. They take the taboos and they just go right at them. We once had a family member try to make it in comedy, and I asked him, hey, there's gotta be a formula, there's gotta be some way you're putting your stand-up routines together. What's the secret sauce? He said, it's very simple, it's this. He said, basically, stand-up comedy is this. You take something offensive and you boldly defend it. I was like, yeah, (laughs) it totally makes sense now. I get their shtick, the gig is up, right? You won't make it in comedy unless you're bold. Well, friends, here's the thing. We need boldness, we need it in our society today. And can I just share with you there's even an atheist who says that Christians should be bold. Have any of you heard of the outspoken activist and atheist, Penn Jillette? Anybody? He has a show on the Las Vegas Strip, and he's now become, he's used his fame as a platform to advance his causes, and one of the big ones is atheism. Here's a story from Penn Jillette. A few years ago, he says, I recorded a video about someone who came to talk to me after one of my shows. The man had participated in the show, he complimented me on the show, and then Penn says, the man said to him, I brought this for you, and he handed him a copy of the New Testament and the Psalms. Normally, this would be offensive, right? Don't do that is what we're told. But Penn says, I was moved by this man's gesture. He was kind. He was nice. He was sane. it's always a compliment, right? He looked me in the eyes, he talked to me, and then he gave me a Bible. Penn says this, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward? Penn says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them about Jesus? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Now to be clear, Penn is still an atheist. He says, I know there's no God and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. But I'll tell you, he was a very, very good man. And that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, there's always room, there's always room for deep disagreement. I don't bring this quote up to shame us. I have my own failures when it comes to sharing my faith. But man, oh man, when you hear it from that perspective, that makes me kind of want to sharpen my game. That makes me want to research how to share my faith, how to get better at it. Right when even an atheist tells me I need to be bold. Friends, there is boldness in the gospel. Let me say it again though. I'm not calling us to rudeness, no. In fact, how does the gospel make you humble, gentle, and bold all at the same time? Here's how it does it. When you rest your life on the cross, when you see that Jesus really did die for your sin, that our sin killed Jesus. It makes you very humble. It makes you very gentle. You've got no room to brag. You've got no room to feel superior. You're one among many, right? Welcome to the club. But when you rest your life on the empty tomb, and you understand that if death cannot defeat your savior, it cannot defeat you as well, that gives you all the boldness in the world you need. And when you bring those together, you have a humble, gentle boldness. So friends, do you need boldness in your life? Well, there's a second reason. There's a second reason to be soft-hearted towards Christ. The gospel builds boldness. What's the third thing that we see? Let's go to verse 48. Let's go to verse 48. Let's look at the first half of verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Oh, what a happy scene. There's praise, there's honor, there's magnifying the Lord. There's just that sense that God's presence has come over you and they just wanna praise the Lord. Anybody ever had that happen? Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's a beautiful thing. Friends, these people lived with a sense of awe and a sense of wonder. Don't we love those moments of all? Don't we need those moments where we're just like struck by the wonder of something? Let me show you what I saw on my drive home yesterday as I drove by Cedar Lake as the sun was setting. That does not even do justice to the greens, the blues, the pinks that were reflecting off the water. I would show you a picture of my backyard, just go to Facebook, you'll see it as the sun sets. There is a beauty to living in Indiana, is there not? And it's not just lower taxes. It's not just a better education system. There is a natural, physical beauty that we should all be proud of. Here's another source of all. Let's talk about newborns. Let's talk about infants. A lot of us feel a sense of wonder and awe after that little blue alien thing has turned into a baby like an hour after it's born, right? I see the mom's kind of smiling. Others are like, that's mean, right? No, there's a sense of awe and wonder there, right? It's beautiful, it's glorious. Here's what gets me about babies two weeks after conception, that little embryo is the size of a pinhead. It can fit on the head of a pin. Yes, that's small. While being that size, Just a week later, ever so slightly larger in that tiny little thing, a heart starts to pump blood through all of those cells. Is that not miraculous? Does that not make you go, whoa? And then eight months and a week later, what happens? You meet that little sack of cells and that little baby. And it's such an amazing process, that journey of nine months, isn't it? Here's what gives me a great sense of awe. The the, the times I feel the most sense of awe and wonder in my life are when I feel small. When I feel small, here's the one thing that always does the trick for me. I need to qualify that and say after my wife's beauty. All right, what introduces awe in my life that makes me feel small? Let's show you a picture from the Hubble telescope. Here it is. This is called the pillars of creation. It's actually named after a Charles Spurgeon sermon. That's pretty cool, right? Christians get a point. All right, here's what induces all. First, this is beautiful. If you could zoom out and see the larger, I think it's called a nebula that it belongs to, you'd just be like, whoa, that's pretty. That induces all, but that's not all, that's not all. Let's take one of those fingers. It looks like, I don't know, like the infinity gauntlet from Avengers. Let's take one of those fingers. Can all of you see A and B on the screen, everybody? Okay, here's how big the pillars of creation are. If you could somehow travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, thank you, very good. It would take you five years to travel from point A to point B. How big is that thing? that makes me feel small. But that's not all, that's not all. Here's the one that really gets me. If you wanted to see this thing in person and could still somehow travel at the speed of light, guess how long it would take you to get there? 7,000 years. That's like Star Wars far away, isn't it? Does that show you some scale of how large God's creation is? That makes me feel small, that induces awe in my life. But here's the thing, here's the thing. All of these things have a shelf life, right? Like the local scenery, the snow's gonna melt, the sun, the hours of the sunlight are going to change. It'll still be beautiful, but it's gonna be different. It has a shelf life. Newborns are amazing until what? Until either they're five months and they get pterodactyl lungs, or two or three years old and the terrible toddler times hit, right? That cuteness has a shelf life. I'll be honest, not trying to be mean to babies here. What about the pillars of creation? If I wanted to go see them in person, if you wanted to go see them in person, if we got into the present day fastest spacecraft that we have, which I think is a space shuttle, and you could somehow travel as fast as humanly possible, as fast as human engineering will get you there, by the time you got there, this thing will probably have evaporated and will be gone. You and I will never see it in person. It has a shelf life, even if it's hundreds of thousands of years old. We need something else to get all. We need something else to get wonder. What do we need? We need the God of the Bible. We need the God whose hand pours out snow, pours out sunlight. We need the God whose hands knit babies together in the womb. We need the God who crafted and painted the pillars of creation. Why? Because in his word, he says, you, you are my greatest creation. I may have created the pillars of creation by the power of my word, but I bought you, I remade you, and I made you a new creation by the power of my own blood. He loves you that much. That is love, and that is a love that is bigger than these pillars. It is a love that will last longer than these pillars, and it is a love that will do more than just fill the gap from us to them. That awakens all in your life. The gospel awakens all. And what a wonderful reason to soften your heart to the living Lord Jesus. So we've seen that the gospel produces passion. It builds boldness, awakens awe. What's the fourth thing that we see? Well, let's just look at the second half of verse 48. What do we find there? Let's read it together. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Friends, what do we learn here? I want to hone in on two words, two key words, two key concepts. Let's hone in on appointed And let's hone in on eternal. Let's look at them in turn, and then let's put them together. First, let's start with appointed. What does appointed mean? Appointed carries with it a truth. A truth that if you are here and your heart is soft towards the Lord will be an amazing, glorious truth. But if you are here and your heart is hard towards the Lord, this will be really offensive. That truth is this. You were appointed, you were ordained, you were fixed for salvation, not just before your birth, but but from before the time where God created the world. From before the time when God laid the very foundations of the planet. Oh friends, and when God appoints something, it is certain, it is set in stone, It is unchangeable. There's appointed. What does eternal mean? What does eternal mean? It means forever, permanent, long-lasting. Longer-lasting than the Energizer Bunny, Betty White, or Queen Elizabeth. It's not changing. That's eternal. Let's take appointed, let's take eternal, and let's bring them together. Why is this good news? What does this mean for me? It means this, when your appointment is eternal, you can never be snatched from God's hand. It means that your name is written in his book of life, and it will never be erased. It means that not just your name, but you yourself are engraven on the palm of his hand. He cannot forget you. Anytime he looks at his hand, he sees you. For God to forget you, he would have to chop his hand off. And that's so absurd, isn't it? Oh, friends, this is good news. You have been secure from eternity past because you're appointed. You are secure into eternity future because your salvation in Jesus is eternal. Oh, this is really good news. Why is it good news? Because we live in a day and age of uncertainty. Right? Like, like there's all kinds of ways we're uncertain. Let me just break down a few. We're uncertain right now about where to invest our money. Do I buy bonds? Do I buy Bitcoin? Or do I bury it in the backyard? The way the economy is going, right? We are uncertain about our jobs and about the future. Will AI, robots, or automated processes replace me? Will my kids have a job? What will they do? We're uncertain. We're uncertain about marriage. What is marriage? When can you end a marriage? How many people can be in a marriage? What kind of people can be in a marriage? We're uncertain about gender. We're uncertain about sex. What makes a boy a boy? What makes a woman a woman? A girl a girl? A man a man? People are asking these questions, right, that we used to have nailed down in this environment of uncertainty, when you become convinced of the Gospel, when you become convinced and assured that Jesus really lived for you, He really died for you, and He really rose for you, you can trust the Jesus of the Bible. And as you do, you find that Jesus commends the Bible. You find that He knew the Bible. You find that he built his life on the Bible. He treated and believed that the Bible was God's word to you. You can build your life on the certain truth found here in this book. And when you do, when this becomes your foundation, there's really good news. There's more good news. You don't have to build your life on any other foundation We've talked a lot about freedom. Look at how the gospel and the certainty that it creates frees you. When you understand that the foundation of your life is not your children, you're free. You're free to hand them over to the Lord and entrust Him with their future. When the foundation of your life is not your marriage, you are free to forgive and to love your spouse when they fail you. When the foundation of your life is not your job, you are free to work for God's glory and your fellow man's good. When the foundation of your life is not your retirement account, you are free to rejoice in the fact that you will retire to a place where the streets are paved with gold. When you do not make the foundation of your life your appearance, or your body image. You are free to no longer let some billboard or some magazine cover tell you how you should look. Oh friends, each one of these things is a good thing unto itself. You can pursue them, I am not condemning them, but they make a terrible foundation for life. Why? Because they can be taken away just like that. Oh friends, we are free to build our lives on the word of God, why? Because the gospel creates certainty. There's one more reason you should give your life to Jesus. Passion, boldness, awe, certainty. Who doesn't want a life marked by these things? Who doesn't want this or need this in their own life, right? They are yours when your heart is soft towards Jesus Christ. But there's one other thing. There's a fifth thing that I want you to see. It's there in verse 52. Let me read for you verses 50 and 52. Let's see if you can get what it is. In verse 50, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Oh, things look down right now. They look bleak. The two pastors who are the best disciples, the best preachers, are moving on. But look at verse 52. Does this deter the disciples? Does it rob them of passion, of boldness, of certainty, or all? No. Why? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Oh, friends, no opponent could step on their joy they knew they were drenched in grace. The boldness, the awe, the passion, the certainty could not have the volume turned down on it in the face of any persecution. Do you want this today? Can you have this today? Let me close with this story. I don't wanna tell you, I wanna show you. Let me tell you the story of a lady named Sabina Wormbrand. Sabina Wormbrand. Sabina Oster Wormbrand was born on July 10th in 1913 in Romania. She was born into a Jewish family, and the town where she grew up was an important educational and cultural hub for Jews in the area. In 1936, at the age of 23, Sabina met and married a man named Richard Wormbrand. While vacationing in that very same year in the mountains of Romania, I don't know, it might have been their honeymoon. They met some Christian missionaries, gave their life to Jesus, and joined the Church of England. What happens next is amazing. During Nazi occupation of Romania in World War II, Sabina lost her parents, her two brothers, and her sisters to a Nazi concentration camp. In response to this, what did Sabina do? She helped rescue Jewish children from Nazi ghettos. She taught them the Christian faith in bomb shelters and was arrested for underground Christian activity. Friends, you don't do this unless the gospel has produced passion in your life. Her story goes on. After World War II, Soviet troops pour into Romania. As the Communist Party cracks down on the church, tries to control it for its own ends, what does Sabina and Richard do? They go right back underground and start a very effective ministry, not just to their own people, but to Soviet troops. That's pretty remarkable. They begin smuggling goods, they begin smuggling food into the country for refugees. As Sabina traveled on her smuggling trips, she would tell Russian, Soviet soldiers in other occupied areas the truth about Jesus. She came home to Romania and would lead street gatherings for all denominations of up to 5,000 people. Friends, you don't do this unless the gospel has built boldness in your life. Her story goes on. They were so effective that her husband, Richard, was eventually arrested. He spent a total of 14 years in communist prisons. Not many women have had their faith tested like Sabina. Though she suffered much sorrow, suffered much loss, she never gave up on her faith. Sabina was eventually arrested and sent to slave labor camps and prison camps as well as her husband. After release before her husband, she spent the rest of her time under house arrest. The communist soldiers would come by regularly telling her, you will be free if you divorce your husband and renounce the faith. She refused. Eventually, they started telling her, that her husband had died. She refused to believe it and she kept on. Friends, you do not do this unless the gospel has created certainty in your life. Well, in 1964, her husband was released and returned home. A year later, they're in the United States testifying before Congress about the inhumane conditions behind the Iron Curtain. Through Richard, through Sabina, Their story and the story of other thousands of persecuted Christians got out and swept across the newspapers and the magazines in the U.S., in Europe, and in Asia. Friends, the gospel was used to awaken awe in other people through Sabina and through Richard. The Wormbrands used this platform, they used their fame to launch an organization many of you are familiar with, the Voice of the Martyrs. It still continues today as one of the leading Christian ministries towards persecuted Christians in other countries. I'd encourage you to check out their website, read their stories, read the stories of persecution and pray for our brothers and sisters. We can thank the worm brands that we can do this today. How did Sabina get this passion, this boldness, this awe and this certainty? The same way you do. By hearing of the savior who was so passionate for your welfare He boldly went to the cross and died, certain that his Father in heaven would raise him from the dead. He now sits in majestic awe, ruling heaven and earth from his throne. And friends, when you come to him, when you soften your heart towards him, your life can be filled with those things and know a joy that wraps around all of them. Sound good? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you. Father God, we thank you for the joy you bring into our lives. We thank you for the passion. We thank you for the boldness. We thank you for the awe and the certainty that that wash over our lives like waves. We pray for more of this. We pray to go out this week and live out these gifts that we have in the gospel. Pray that if we're here and we believe in Jesus, we are refreshed in this. I pray that if we're here and we do not know Jesus, that we would bow the knee, our hearts would soften and not harden and we can go out and live for him. We ask this all in your son's great name and all God's people say.